Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It says in the book of Habakkuk, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will we gather on a Sunday morning only to lament at the loss of life and the persistence of violence? How long will mothers and families and communities collapse in grief before our eyes? How long will we use the news as evidence for our preconceptions rather than calls for empathy? How long, O Lord, will we remain silent, paralyzed by our differing opinions? How many times, O Lord, will I have to stand here and preach about lives being extinguished because of hate or fear or unjust systems? How long will we cry? How long will we wait? How long? How long? How long? This has been another devastating week of news this week with the deaths of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile and the five Dallas police officers, Brent Thompson, Patrick Zarempia, Michael Kroll, Mike Smith, and Lorne Ahrens. It has been an incredible week of grief and sadness and frustration and righteous anger and soul-searching. And this morning, I wonder if I could start by just telling three stories. The first story happened six years ago, December 2010, the day after Christmas. One of my church members a police officer, Jack McGuire, was killed in the line of duty, responding to a robbery in our town. Jack responded to the call at the local Coles and pursued the robbers across the parking lot as they fled, trying to get into a local neighborhood to hide from the police. He ran after them, and he was shot by them. He wasn't even supposed to be working that day. He took the shift for a younger police officer so that he could spend the holidays with his family. Jack was a son of our town. His father had been the police chief, and Jack had been a police officer in Woburn forever, and we were all shocked. And in the days that followed, police from all over the country came to our town. They processed through the funeral home, paying their respect to Jack and his family. People gathered at a worship service where the governor spoke and police showed their solidarity with their brother-in-arms who had fallen in the line of duty. His name is enshrined in the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial in Washington, D.C. But after all the visits... And after all the speeches, and after all the services, I sat with his widow 
at their kitchen table. And after all of that, it was just a wife who had lost her husband, children who had lost their father. She knew every day that when he went out, that it could happen. And this day, it did. And our hearts go out to the families of those Dallas police officers who now we will see memorialized and honored as they should rightly be, but then in the days to come living with such grief. Second story. It was just a month ago after the Orlando shootings in the week that followed. Uh, One of my best friends is gay, and she wrote an article about her experience in the aftermath of that shooting. And in this blog post, she tells the story of her partner's Aunt Norma. Aunt Norma is 88 years old, and she called their house to express her concern and her lament for my friend and her partner. And my friend wrote this. She said, Norma, Kelly's mom, Kelly's mom's 88-year-old sister, was the only person in either of our families to reach out to us after Orlando. None of our straight friends contacted us either. This isn't an indictment. The truth is, until Kelly called me to tell me about the message from Norma, I hadn't given a thought to whether anyone might make a point of contacting us. Kelly called to share Norma's message with me. We both wept at the beauty of it, at how this wise woman knew that the thing the moment called for was a simple expression of concern and compassion, nothing more and nothing less. She says, this is how you are an ally. You're right there in the moment, acknowledging the particularity of grief and pain and anger and very real fear. This bad thing happened, they know. It happened to you in a very specific way that cannot be generalized to other forms of terror and hate, however parallel or otherwise related they might be. I reread this article every day that week, and I cried every day because I hadn't called her. She's one of my best friends. I know her and I love her. But I did and did not realize. I knew but I didn't know. As much as I love my friend and I know my history, I don't know her reality, her experience. And I wasn't there. And I'm starting to understand better now. Third story happened a couple years ago. Our men's breakfast here at UDLC had a joint men's breakfast with our friends from Zion Baptist Church, African American Baptist Church in Ambler, where our friends Brian Jenkins belongs. Uh, And our men's breakfast groups met once here and once at Zion, and the purpose was to build connections and relationships and understanding after you may remember the racially charged words from the Eagles' then wide receiver Riley Cooper. If you remember that, it's funny how those days feel like easier times and ages ago. And Brian and I took turns presenting. And when it was my turn to present, I started by confessing though that race was not something that I have to think or deal with every day because I am white. And the men from Zion were shocked and intrigued because they deal with racism every day. And they opened a conversation with us. Uh, Even one of their members who's a state policeman 
talked about the different ways they experience racism in their everyday lives. And after that, I committed myself uh, to better understand and to be a better listener and reader and to widen my contacts and friends and news sources, the people of colors, and to read as much as I could, and I'm still learning about it. One of the books that I read was by uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, a letter to his son called Between the World and Me. And he says, but all of our phrasing, race, race relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscles, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. He tells his young son, you must never look away from this. A friend of mine says people of color are so frequently not believed when discussing personal experiences of racism that it is so important for us to listen and believe and elevate and amplify their stories. Just last night, we served downtown at Chosen 300, and before we served, Brian, as he typically does, gathered us in a circle. Uh, And before we prayed, he said to us how concerned the guests would be last night and they were by all the events of the last week. And he told us the story of having to teach his two sons who are becoming teenagers, a very dangerous time in the life of an African-American child, um, about what to do when they are pulled over, to keep their hands on the wheel, to make no sudden movements, to ask permission for, to get their license, something he said to us, and it's true that white parents don't have to do. And here's the thing, I think, with these three stories, at least for me. We know people. We love people. But we don't always fully understand their experiences and their realities. We extrapolate from our own experiences, and I think, or at least I have thought, you know, their experience is sort of like my experience, my reality, just a little different. Except I've learned it's not. And we need, I need to do a better job of listening and reading and understanding the very different experiences of other people. This morning, the lectionary couldn't have better timing than to assign us the parable of the Good Samaritan. The story goes, a man inquires of Jesus what he has to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, you're right, the law says love God and love your neighbor. But the man wanting to justify himself, says, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan, that a man was robbed and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. A priest walks by and does nothing. A Levite, a godly man, walks by and does nothing. But then a Samaritan stops and helps the man and tends his wound, gets him to the end, and pays the money for him to be cared for. And what makes this story so surprising to Jesus' listeners is that the Samaritan was considered a mortal enemy of the people that Jesus told his story to. The Samaritan was the other. He was despised, and yet he became the one to reach out, to cross all the lines that people had drawn. He becomes the model of faith. Whereas the man who originally asked the question of Jesus wanted to figure out basically how few people he could consider his neighbor how few people he could take responsibility for and still get by, Jesus tells him, your neighbor is everyone. Not just the people in your village, 
not just the people in your city or country, not just the people that believe what you believe or look and sound the way you look and sound, but everyone. Recently, I've been reading an interesting book. It's not about the Good Samaritan story, but there's a whole chapter about the Good Samaritan in it. And the author says that the Good Samaritan story offers, and hang on because it's a bit wordy, she says it offers an ethic for a pluralistic postmodernity defined by encounters with many varieties of ethnic, racial, national, gendered, and religious strangers of the sort the Samaritan found along the road. What does that mean? It means that the Good Samaritan story is about loving and caring for others amidst differences. It's about widening the circle of concern to those that are different from us. The book contrasts this Good Samaritan ethic with what sociologists of religion find to be the dominant form of religiosity in white middle-class churches, which is the golden rule. Do you remember the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And these scholars that write about this, they point out about a couple things. They say, the golden rule assumes that we can make a better world if each of us takes our own preferences, needs, and concerns as a starting point, and then applies these to our treatment of others in the world. So we inhabit the center of this interaction, not the other. Our experiences, our preferences, our desires become normative, not the others. It assumes people are pretty much like us, and it assumes reciprocity, that in return, at some point, people will do unto us. The author says, at its core, the golden rule is based on the idea of sameness. In small, relatively homogeneous communities where it can be fairly assumed that everyone has the same background, values, and general preferences, taking one's own experience as a starting point for moral engagement can indeed foster an environment of social reciprocity that seems balanced and fair. She says, but in more diverse, complex societies, this idea is more difficult to sustain in practice. The golden rule invites a certain narrowing of the circle of care because it turns out that people tend to look for people who are most like them as the subjects of their care because they have a better sense of what they will need. So a golden rule ethic, a predominant ethic in churches like ours can reinforce sameness, shrink the circle of care to people who are most like us, and it can be self-sustaining and self-reinforcing. Instead, the Good Samaritan is not a do-unto-others ethics whose starting point is what you would have done to you, but rather what radical love calls you to do for others in all of their otherness and difference. Not do-unto-others, but more like do what they need when you find them on the road. It moves us from sympathy to empathy to solidarity with those who suffer. It invites us to expand our circles of concern to embrace and care for others amidst all of our differences, to put other persons at the center of our concern and not ourselves, and to reach across all the lines that are drawn by our culture and religions and histories, to put ourselves in the roles of students and listeners and learners, to understand the realities of those whom we love and care about, to grasp their realities more deeply so that we can love them more fully so that we can recognize and realize what Jesus showed the man that wanted to justify himself, that everyone is our neighbor, grieving police widows and families, 
and brothers and sisters of color are good friends. For a true neighbor is the one who shows mercy. In a statement this past week, Bishop Eric Gronberg, a Lutheran bishop in Texas, says, Who is my neighbor? That question asked of Jesus is simple and yet most difficult to carry out. The story of the Good Samaritan challenges us to stop pushing back when others tell us their story of pain. We are encouraged to listen closely to one another and take seriously the experience of others to listen more, to speak less, and to care for those marginalized. We have to listen and educate ourselves and reach out and love. Jesus calls us to be the good Samaritans. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers, to be repairers of the breach. And it starts by recognizing our neighbor in everyone, especially those that are different from us, and acting in great love. Finally, I want to share this brief reflection from the writer E.B. White um, that someone shared on Facebook this week and gave me a word of encouragement in seemingly dark times. Um, The situation is March of 1973, uh, and someone writes a letter to E.B. White, mourning what he sees as the bleak future of the human race. And E.B. White writes this. He says, Dear Mr. Nadeau, as long as there is one upright man, as long as there is one compassionate woman, the contagion may spread and the scene is not desolate. Hope is the thing that is left to us in a bad time. I shall get up Sunday morning and wind the clock as a contribution to order and steadfastness. Sailors have an expression about the weather. They say, the weather is a great bluffer. I guess the same is true of our human society. Things can look dark, then a break shows in the clouds, and all is changed, sometimes rather suddenly. It's quite obvious that the human race has made a mess of life on this planet. But as a people, we probably harbor seeds of goodness that have lain for a long time, waiting to sprout when the conditions are right. Humankind's curiosity, its relentlessness, its inventiveness, its ingenuity have led it into deep trouble. We can only hope that these same traits will enable it to claw its way out. Hang on to your hat. Hang on to your hope. And wind the clock, for tomorrow is another day. Amen.